Take a network break. Join us for our weekly analysis of IT news. This week, we have stories from Cisco and Microsoft, a new standard for IoT interoperability, a guilty verdict for a security executive, and more tech news and commentary. Uh, there are no ads today. We do have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to talk about 40 Deceptor. This is a security appliance meant to deceive attackers while providing you with a zero-false positive mechanism for detecting a breach that will come up at the end of the show. Uh, if you like the network break, check out our other podcasts, including Day2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Heavy Strategy, and full stack journey and our newest podcast series kubernetes unpacked all right so let's move on to the news i uh, will start off with ariaka sd-wan and sassy vendor ariaka they've added secure web gateway and firewall as a service capabilities to its offering these new capabilities are delivered as a service via ariaka's points of presence uh, the secure web gateway feature includes url filtering av and malware scanning and ssl inspection uh, ariaka is getting into the crowded secure access service edge or sassy space uh, sassy combines WAN networking and cloud delivered security services uh, ariaka at this time doesn't have quite the full feature set that you get from other sassy players uh, but it does have on its roadmap, things like a cloud access security broker, threat protection, and a next-gen firewall as a service. Yeah, so Ariaka, the way I think of Ariaka is that they are a backbone. They have their own private backbone that they've built, uh, which mm -hmm. may or may not be over various public providers, you know, um, and then you tunnel the traffic into them. And so they've got that network there, so it's become uh, obvious that customers want security built into their WAN. And so on mm -hmm. top of the pro backbone they've got, they're now adding uh, security services, pretty basic ones from the list here. But as you say, more of a starting point, I think, than a than a, an ending point. And right. I think this sort of puts them on the footprint. Like we talked about uh, other companies that have their own backbones. There's a number of them. I'm thinking of Graphient, which we talked to recently over on Heavy Strategy, um, yeah, and Cato Networks. Yeah, Cato Networks, Teridian to some extent, you know, those types of companies. And I think they're starting to realize that uh, they need to do something with the SASE part. They have to have the security embedded because customers expect it's not enough. You're not going to, you know, win. You're going to have to defer to third parties. So if you think about, you know, Palo Alto, Fortinet, or even Zscaler, if you're giving away that, you know, getting them involved in the deal to, to get them to do the security part – then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you might find your SD-WAN strategy is not all that great. Customers, you know, you're giving business to somebody else at one point, but you're also introducing a competitor into the solution. Right. Right. So I think it's important. And I also think customers increasingly are looking for that unified solution. They don't want to have to, you know, weld something together, you know, firewalls from this company, SD-WAN from that company, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think we do want it all to be the same. Yeah, and Ariaka is actually sort of, I think, well positioned to get into the SASE space in that, because of their private backbone network, they had already built out a bunch of global pops to get you onto their backbone. And so now mm. they can leverage these pops as that sort of inflection point where they can start delivering security services uh, as a service. So they're, I think they are positioned here. They've just got to, mm -hmm. I don't know if they're developing these security services on their own or licensing them from third parties, but they've got to add it into the portfolio and then also figure out how to. Mm, yeah. Not so difficult these days for you know a well-funded company to sure. build an automation yeah. solution to put firewalls in, right? Right, it's not a huge hurdle. Not a huge, uh, but it well, is something that needs to be done well. well. Yeah. Right, it's not infinitely difficult, shall we say? I'm sure it's difficult, but not infinitely difficult. I do see Ariaka coming here late to market, but not overly late. Like, it's not like the game is over with this market. So, you know, congratulations. No, not at all. I mean, mm. Sassy's uh, the term was first coined back in 2019. So, and I people are still digesting <laughs> SD WAN. Uh, it's still so. SD WAN. Don't, whether you, <laughs> you don't need to call There's it something still a different. Huge, yeah. huge opportunity here for Ariaka. They're not late at all. No, I said a little bit late. I didn't say. Well, yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, links in the show notes if you want to get more details, we'll move on. Uh, Cisco and Microsoft have announced a partnership in which Cisco SD-WAN customers can get access to Microsoft's private backbone network to get site-to-site -site connectivity, particularly for companies looking for site connectivity to distant regions or across the globe. Uh, the partnership is bringing together Cisco's SD-WAN cloud hub and the Azure virtual WAN, and the goal is to make it easy to connect, for example, say a site in the U.S. with a site in Europe, and instead of having to work with carriers and telcos, customers can get that IP transit more quickly and easily via SD-WAN and the Azure backbone. Yeah, and you compare this solution. So Cisco's still at the SD-WAN stage. I still don't perceive Cisco as having a SASE solution at all. I don't know about you. Like, we don't see Cisco. Well, they, they'll, they'll say they will, but again, it's mm. that they've got all the pieces in their portfolio and they're yeah. working on welding them together uh, yeah. to be an integrated service. It's got to be one product. You can't have, you know, 35 licenses for, you know, 19 right. different products and four, manage, you know, four pane of glass management solutions. It's got to be... <laughs> You know, I think that the companies like Ariaco, who we've talked about, and all the others, having a unified point of control for the WAN connectivity, where wherever it goes, and the security is all one thing, and that's valuable. Whereas Cisco, yeah. slow off the space. It's not to say that they can't do it, and or not to say that they won't, but especially comparing it to what we're talking about, this is it. This feels like a logical partnership to me. Big companies like doing business with other big companies, even when it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Um, it's just an inherent nature of big companies. They're always attracted to other big companies because apparently they can do big things. That doesn't actually hold true, but that's what that, it always feels like. There's a gravity that big companies and VPs between companies always come up with. And, you know, this idea of having a private backbone and trunking your backbone, your SD-WAN traffic onto it to accelerate it is a well-established principle. It's been around for over a decade as far as I know. And we, as we said before, companies like Graphian and and Cato and Ariaco are already doing this. And I also wonder, or speculate quietly, you know, I wonder if telcos are happy that Cisco's taking away their customers and giving them off to Microsoft. I mean, when you read the Cisco blog, there is mm. kind of a, a little dig at the carriers and telcos, including right in the first paragraph, uh, a phrase that says, quote, uh, MPLS is less flexible and takes longer to provision. So yeah, that is a little shot across the bow of their carrier Well, customers. I think it's fair to say that the product manager is tasked with selling this service and this product. And if it takes, if it means digging right. at telcos, then that's what you do, right? So <laughs> that's their problem. That's that the problem. Sometimes you, you know, I think in the technology market today, sometimes you're the competitor and sometimes you're partners and, mm -hmm. and You've, you've got to be a little bit thick-skinned, but it does feel like the telcos are definitely under threat from these sorts of offerings where people just bypass the telcos. On the other hand, the telcos may be happier dealing with less customers and bulk vendors and be able to stop you know, fiddling around with MPLS tenants and multi-tenancy and just get on to delivering bandwidth and focus on core bandwidth, core, core services. Sure. And you're still going to have to contact your carrier or telco for that first mile and last mile access anyway, so they'll get you some way. Uh, I think it's, it is a good partnership for Cisco and Microsoft. Obviously, Azure's built out a network. They might as well rent out whatever available capacity they have. And Cisco, for its part, gets to help customers provision their sites faster yeah. and you know make that SD-WAN you know, purchase more valuable to the customer. So that, yeah, that but not an innovation catching up with competitors. No, is, no. Know, there's plenty of startups yeah, doing that. this. So, yeah. yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, ASIC maker Marvell is embracing the Sonic Network OS for use cases, including storage networking, ARM-based control plane processors, and Ethernet FIs and optics. Yeah, so in this case, they're talking about Sonic, but mostly in the context of DPUs in this case, because Marvell has the Octeon uh, ARM CPU on a chip or system on a module, as they call it. And they also have the Prestira ASIC Silicon, which they're using, and apparently they've been selling that to a number of different customers out there in Ethernet switches. Uh, Marvell has also been popular in the wireless Wi-Fi solution space as well. 
um, and also in certain uh, smaller, small to mid-market routers. So I think some of the Microtik routers are using Marvel Silicon to do the forwarding. And so in this case, what they're trying to promote here is that Marvel has Sonic support. And I sort of see this as a pitch towards cloud companies, not necessarily the mega scale clouds who they've got their own operating system and they develop and support it. But there's a a significant market at the mid in the mid scale. And companies like Marvell, and we saw this before with Anovium before they were acquired, and we've seen this with uh, you know, various other companies out there who are saying, we will support uh, Sonic on the Switch. You can buy that from us and we'll give you tech support so that you don't have to go to a third party to do the integration. And I mm-hmm. sort of see this as a step in that direction. Did you is that viable? Yeah, I mean, it's to me further appeal of uh, further uh, the further appeal of Sonic among the cloud scale companies because the idea is that they can disaggregate that hardware uh, and just you know buy whatever ASICs they want from whoever they want multiple vendors and but have that uh, common operating system on top. Mm. Uh, and so Marvella is saying, hey, you know, if you're a Sonic shop, uh, think about us for your hardware needs because we're supporting that NOS that you're using. Yeah. So, and not only for switches, but also for DPUs. So, Sonic is in, yep. is slowly <laughs> yes. entering the DPU space. They're not exactly launching in with a big high-profile announcement, but I don't think that they have to. Um, and in this case, they're also in the article talking about Sonic for storage, which is where they introduce certain high availability features for RDMA over Ethernet. That's Rocky, um, and also some telemetry for robust storage networking. Um, and they're also talking about Marvel's Ethernet bunch of flash storage architecture, which is not something I know most about. But they're Neither. saying, that, <laughs> you know, I believe there is a significant movement around, it has been for a while, to put Ethernet interfaces directly onto hard drives, uh, sorry, flash drives, and to then just use them as a bunch of flash and then use some sort of external software to stripe data across them. And we mm. are seeing some sort of, movement around DPUs or early discussions that you can use the DPU as a storage controller, like what used to be a RAID controller fundamentally becomes a storage controller and stripe the data over Ethernet instead of striping it over. So it's still NVMe running over Rocky, but you're actually doing the storage functions in the DPU instead of having an external storage array doing that for you. And so now you can have just a bunch of flash sitting in a rack somewhere and away you go. Right. Um, yeah, I, this is the first time I've heard of Sonic being used in a storage networking context. Maybe there are others also doing it, but uh, Marvell is the first yeah. one to mention it to, to my yeah, nose. But I, I know don't that others are doing it. Bluefield, yeah. Nvidia Bluefield, and I think okay. Intel's will do it with whatever their DPU comes out when it comes out, because it's a key function for the DPUs. Is that not only it will actually change the way that storage is used, particularly for cloud providers who will then be able to dynamically pool storage according to what. So you'll be able to say, I want. 10 terabytes of storage, 20 terabytes of storage attached to this instance, and then they can make that available. They don't have to use an external storage array burning gas, you know, electricity. They can mm-hmm. instantly spin it up or not. And then if those resources aren't being used, they could be allocated to networking functions or database lookup functions or that sort of stuff. So right. yep. it's still not clear that Sonic's going to be adapted by enterprises. I think most enterprise vendors would prefer to develop their own operating systems at this stage, so continue their own proprietary NOSes so that they can maintain branding and customer control, but also, importantly, integration with their own SDN tools. But I feel that over time, as the software control layer becomes more and more important, then we'll see the actual operating system on the switch become less important, and Sonic might, might, might break out into becoming the de facto, in the same way that Linux did for servers. At some point, the operating system on the server became less 
core, what became more important was the application running on it. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, if we get to the place where SDN, Software Defined Networking, sort of becomes the de facto mechanism for managing particularly your data center network, then the NOS underneath doesn't really matter. And so, you know, mm. you could go to a Sonic uh, because you, all of the functions that you really care about are happening at a higher layer. Mm. We're not there yet. Uh, and the traditional vendors are still very focused on making sure their enterprise customers stick with the NOS yeah. that they sell and support and have developed training around. So, yeah, it's going to be a long transition. Yeah, I mean, like Cisco UCS talked about this week about 100 gig storage connections using their VIC architecture. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, fine, but that's a very old concept. You really don't care, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but there's still people out there, you know, doing fiber channel, connecting to legacy storage arrays. And so that is important in that context. But the idea that your switch has to support fiber channel and ethernet at the same time, not a long-term strategy, but for now that means custom silicon, unique propositions and so forth. And over time, I suspect, a long time, years, <laughs> many years, Sonic may become like what Linux, you know, it replaced Solaris and, and proprietary Linux, Unixes and so forth. So, Sonic could be the Linux of the data center, perhaps, yes. you could say. And that, is the, that is the arc that we believe, I believe. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to speak for you. I, 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 potentially, yeah, there's a mm. possibility. Yeah. Other factors have to come into play, but yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Mm. All right, moving on. Uh, there's a new industry standard for IoT devices. The standard is called Matter, and the Matter 1.0 specification has been released. It's overseen by the Connectivity Standards Alliance. This is an industry consortium whose members include Apple, Google, Amazon, Samsung, and Huawei. And more. <laughs> Very long list. Yeah, a lot more. 400 of them, Huge I think. List. 400 yep. and something or something. Quite a lot. And um, the idea here is that if you're going to have various home consumer devices all connected together, and today it's Apple HomeKit or you know, Samsung standard or, uh, you know, Google or Amazon's, and none of them talk together. So once you pick one, you have to stay with that whole thing. Um, I've been heavily into HomeKit, but for various reasons, I just can't get the devices that I want. And I think all of them have finally realized that the idea that none of them are actually going to dominate in this space and they need to get together and just agree on this because other, the, cons the consumer market's just too diverse um, and there's too many vendors, nobody's going to win and force their standards onto anybody else. And so um, the fact that Apple is on board, I think, is significant because they're probably the most major player here. The rest are all sort of copying Apple, in my opinion. And getting Apple at the table with Google, Amazon, and Samsung is <laughs> really where it's at, I think. It's significant. I When you dropped this link into the show notes, I was like, good luck if Apple's not part of it. But they are. And I mm. do think that is very significant because Apple does have a track record of using its market power to go its own way. Mm -hmm. So if they're willing to actually go along with this spec, and probably they're trying to influence it as much as they can, but it's, you know, I think a strong sign for matter if uh, you can get Apple on board because all of the others are going to come online as well. It's, it's an interesting technology. Uh, it's using the Thread protocol, which has been emerging for quite some time, which is an IPv6-based protocol, and it's a service for layer. wireless mesh, right? Mm, a wireless yeah. mesh. Uh, so it sort of replaces Ethernet in a way. So it doesn't use the Ethernet uh, completely. It replaces some of the Mac access layers, and, and it forms a uh, – you can build a partial mesh or a full mesh out of it if you want – uh, depending on how you topologize it. But even though your Wi-Fi may be point-to-point, -point, the device mesh or the application mesh is actually uh, all over the place. And that's interesting because it means that you can use devices as repeaters so that you've got some communication uh, mm -hmm. all the way end-to-end. -end. And you don't necessarily have to have a central you know, Wi-Fi reaching each device you, you know, or Bluetooth where 
you're trying to pass the signal from one to the other and you go through hop, 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 and then you run out of bandwidth at some point. So there is definitely some some long star, long-term thinking here and long-term testing in Thread. And Matter runs over the top of that. So Matter becomes a, an application layer over Thread, over IPv6. It uses IPv6 for part of it and Ethernet for part of it. I do think what this does do is it shifts the competition for dominance into the gateways. And this is relevant to the enterprise because you need to think about this architecture. Up until now, Apple HomeKit would have a master or a controller in an Apple TV if you had one or an iPad if you had one or whatever. And that's the central hub and all the devices would register with that. And that would be where the scheduled software run and the scheduled processes would run and all that. If you're doing multi-scenes and things like that, who's going to win in that space? Because the one that's the controller then becomes the brand awareness. That's the one the customer sees. And I think Mm. the competition will now move up less from... (laughs) light bulbs on off door locks you know and it'll move up to that controller which is what we've seen with SDN right right and so yeah. i think that's what we're going to see there is you know uh, tools like juniper abstract controlling the data center is more important than the actual brand of switch for them they're happy to run it on multi vendor because that's the future for them right and i'm sure apple is very confident that it can compete strongly as being the you know gateway mm. device that controls everything else yeah so there is some market dynamics there that'll be interesting to watch, but it does mean that uh, I've been holding back on a lot of automation stuff because I just can't find devices that do HomeKit, and the ones that do are just inordinately priced because they have to apply to Apple for a license and then have to be approved, <laughs> which is fine in a sense that you know we're sort of used to the magic priest blessing the approved solutions type thing these days. Seems to be acceptable for some reason, and um, but at the other hand, it means there's less vendors participating in that ecosystem. Uh, I am not into home automation or IoT devices for the home. I have no interest, don't want any part of it, uh, but it seems like this is the wave of the future. And if you're going to have home IoT, at least they should all be able to work together. So, no, and I guess the trick here is that, you know, if there's a standard like Matter, then fridges and washing machines and dishwashers will all have a single standard. The question now is whether you bother to integrate them or not. You just might never <laughs> use them. You know. I, I don't want a smart fridge. I don't want a smart washing machine. I don't want to have to do a software update or a license check just so I can do a load of laundry, <laughs> but uh, that's me. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. Yeah, good luck to me. Good luck to you. <laughs> Although a toaster that tells me when the toast is cooked would be good, because sometimes I forget. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone's working on it right now. Uh, get on that, please. Please. Uh, <laughs> moving on, the former InfoSec head of Uber has been found guilty of an attempted cover-up of a 2016 security breach. Joseph Sullivan was found guilty by a federal jury in San Francisco of trying to hide the breach from the public and the Federal Trade Commission. According to the verdict, Sullivan tried to cover up a 2016 breach in which personal data of 57 million customers and drivers were stolen. Sullivan reportedly paid the attackers $100,000 in Bitcoin not to publicize the breach and to destroy the data they had stolen. So lots of odd things about this. I think one of the course is that Uber back in, and this is in, back in the days when Uber was uh, really awful, when Travis Kalanick was actually in control. Was a CEO. And, and, he yeah. was a CEO and dodgy, you know, bordering on criminal activities was almost every day for Uber. You know, mm-hmm. don't ask for permission, just go into a town and set up and wait for the law to hit us and then we'll fight them with everything we've got sort of stuff. So in that sense, culturally, I, I suspect this guy's been trapped but what he's guilty of is covering up the breach. They had a duty to tell people to register it and to tell what was happened, and they chose mm-hmm. to cover it up. And this particular person, who is the CISO, um, did actually go to extensive lengths. And what he did do is he didn't talk to the general counsel, but he chose 
did speak to, say, people like Travis Kalanick and a lawyer to say, what should he do? But he didn't speak to all of the executives, just a few, who all agreed they should mm-hmm. cover it up and then went on to cover it up and then further on went to deny the cover-up later on, so compounded the crime. So I think the court's going to be quite harsh here, and especially when you're a chief security officer, you know, you're in charge of IT security. Mm-hmm. Yes, your job is to actually be sacked when a security event happens. That's absolutely part of the job description, <laughs> right? Like Equifax, sure. you know, uh, we've sacked our chief security officer. Yes, he walked off with a five million dollar handshake, <laughs> but that's we've certainly done something about it. Well, now you know we right. someone's paid for the crime. You know, he'd be walking out right. dancing all the way. You know. Well, that's the trick. And, mm. you know, I, we should be clear that he's not going to jail because of the breach. He's going to jail for the cover-up. Mm. Uh, so that's the real difference here. Uh, obviously, you know, when a breach happens, it's not great for a CSO or a CISO, um, and they do tend to take the hit, be the sacrificial lamb. But, you know, that sort of comes with the job. Uh, what you should not be doing is committing crimes on top of it. Yeah. Uh, I actually think, you know, the Uber, the then CEO, Travis Kalanick, was actually included in an email and the two executives were discussing the breach immediately, and Kalanick is discussing the bug bounty program and says, we need to document this very tightly, which is code for, don't talk to me about it, don't send an email, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, These conversations are happening in person in a coffee shop somewhere. Yeah, I've got to say, it really looks like you know someone's going down for it, but not necessarily everybody. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 my understanding is that Joseph Sullivan said, it wasn't just me. I did involve others, but it doesn't seem like anyone else is getting punished for this. He is taking the fall here. Uh, so, uh, but it also is under his purview, and he did commit this crime, so he does bear some responsibility. Yeah. So you know, remember, <laughs> uh, he he goes up for sentencing, uh, and the conviction could get him as much as eight years in jail. Although, uh, given that it's white collar crime and he's a white dude, he's probably not going to serve that much time. But I we'll see. It is it, it is a. Uh, a reminder that the cover-up is often worse than the crime. So, yeah, mm-hmm. don't cover it up. I think it's going to be good in the long run because it reminds CISOs that they have responsibilities, personal yes. liabilities, because most of the time these people rely on uh, executive insurance to cover mm-hmm. them. So if something happened, they invoke the insurance policy and things, and they feel safe, so you get a moral hazard around this. So someone actually going down for this crime should send a wake-up call, even though in this case he did actually go – wasn't just a, a – an everyday crime. It was actually a personal crime. Yeah. So. Right. And if you are going to do something like this, document it in email so that, you know, you could take the CEO with you. <laughs> Don't go down alone. That would have been better in this case. <laughs> I kind of wonder, you know, going forward, what percentage of VC investments uh, in startups is going to be quietly earmarked for lawsuits and settlements that will follow the inevitable data breach? Mm. Uh, like, still, I putting th- aside well, uh, 10% of this C round for, you know, when you get hacked and we have to. Pay a hundred million dollars? Uh, not much. Executive insurance is <laughs> rising, though. So <laughs> that's probably going up now. Mm. Anyway, a couple of people reached out to us through packetpushers.net fu uh, to to flag our interest in this. We had noticed it too, but it's good to know uh, that you know if there's a particular story you're interested in hearing our opinion or getting commentary on, hit us up at packetpushers.net fu. Or if we get something wrong or you want to follow up, you can also hit us there too. Uh, moving on, the private equity buyout and merger of Citrix Systems and Tibco is complete. That's according to a press release from Vista Equity Partners and Evergreen Coast Capital, who managed the deal. Citrix and Tibco are going to operate under a new company called the Cloud Software Group while still retaining their original brands. Yeah, and they acquired the Dane domain name cloud.com. That's pretty prestigious, don't you think? That's got to be worth something. Got to be worth quite a bit of money. Um, I don't know what to make of this, so I spent a fair bit of time sort of poking at this. 
And eventually, like Citrix and Tipco are not immediately two businesses that you think are like congruent or cumulative or, you know, mm-hmm. there's some sort of synergy between the two. I, I, um, but it turns out that the CEO of this operation previously ran Broadcom Software uh, last month. And um, he would be, you know, Broadcom Software is a business that did take mature software companies, Symantec, Sia, Computer Associates and so forth, and then run uh-huh. them to to quite stable profitability. So taking mature enterprise companies and then operating them at its stable growth and stable profitability. Um, keep in mind that Broad, Broadcom is set to buy VMware, so it's a similar business model. They're buying a stable, <coughs> mature business that they are now going to you know, sustain the sustain the development, the product development, but mostly look to extract profits from it. Is my thing. right? It's, stable and mature is a really nice way of saying minimize, you know, new product development and just maintain existing licenses for the next couple of decades. Yeah, I think VMware's product pipeline probably runs for a few for a while yet. They've got some new markets that they can translate. So we're seeing VMware make a big push, say, from the enterprise into telco. So they want to see their ESX hypervisor be used in telcos in the five G space. That's a growth market, but you're not fundamentally changing the product. You're just moving it into adjacent markets, if that makes sense. And I think we're you're talking about VMware here in the context that that's sort of the model we're yes. expecting the Broadcom is going to run VMware as just sort of a stable, mature, money-generating machine as opposed you to let's drive many new innovations. innovations. Yeah, yeah, no new products. I'm not too sure where VMware could go um, from where it is. They have to be independent. There's too many other suppliers. Anything that VMware does that you know, a partnership with Cisco would require a response from Dell. And, you know, I think there's a lot of non-competes with Dell and VMware. So, you know, when <laughs> Dell still owns the bulk of VMware stock and all that sort of stuff. So um, I do feel like um, there is a conclusion you can potentially draw um, that established enterprise companies that have run out of energy appear to have opportunities in a managed fund style of operation, not as publicly traded combinations. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not as publicly traded companies. So perhaps they can be overhauled or perhaps they can just be, you know, revamped into steady cash flow operations inside of a private equity. And I notice in this case, it's being run by Elliott Managed uh, Elliott Investments, which is a well-known VC slash private equity firm, but they're not making any dramatic claims about, you know, we're going to double the size of this business in two years, you know. It's, no, that's not what this is about. Yeah, and we should note that the Citrix and Tipco are also now off the public market, so they are going to exist as private entities. And yeah, I agree. As as you said, they're just sort of looked at as stable, revenue generating organizations. Uh, less about innovation and more about just you know cranking out, doing what we already do. And you know we've got a large number of customers who've got our products you know deeply intertwined with their you know mm-hmm. core business operations. And so that just is is revenue we can count on for the next X number of years. And that's all we're going to focus on. That, that's my that's the conclusion and you know the CEO Tom Krauss is somebody who's had experience doing that so you would assume they bought him in or <laughs> sprung him from Broadcom software to come and do the same thing uh, <laughs> any evidence to the contrary send it over to packetpushers.net slash fu yeah please do because I feel you know for Broadcom to have bought a company like CA tells me that if you are a tech company that reaches a certain size you can have sort of a long perhaps inglorious future but you'll still be around for decades to come. And that's got, that means something, I think. So. It does. It does. 
All right, our last story for the day. Uh, there's a startup called Ukama that's launched a crowdfunding project to raise money for a decentralized cellular network that rides on top of consumer Wi-Fi. The idea is that you to install some hardware at a home or office and it takes your home Wi-Fi signal, turns it into a local LTE network. And the goal is to build up local regions of service where people could roam from network to network, uh, sort of on a community LTE network, or to sort of build out a private uh, uh, local LTE network of your own. Uh, when I first looked at this, I thought it was a home thing, Drew, but the more I look at it, the more I realize it's probably more of a, um, uh, a small to medium business product where if you're somebody who's got like a farm, like, and Wi-Fi mm -hmm. means, you know, putting in a base station near the office and then you've got to put one in the barn and then one, you know, you've got to put access points all over the place to get coverage. Right. It makes mm -hmm. more sense to use an LTE uh, base station running in the CBRS frequencies, so the citizen band radio frequencies, which is only allocated for LTE use in the US, hasn't yet reached the rest of the world. And so this idea means then you can actually have devices inside the range of that private LTE network that you're creating that then share your internet connection out, right? So you can have a, a, a small farm, a large farm, with a private LTE. You don't necessarily have to go and buy a full-fledged private 5G thing and this would be enough to get you the range and the distance that you're looking for but maybe none of the corporate features that larger operations would have that was that was kind of what i was thinking of that's i agree i think you know they're sort of coming to market with this crowdfunding approach and hey build a community network using your own home wi-fi with our cool gear for you know sort of the hobbyist as a way to mm. raise a little bit of money and also draw attention to the company but i do agree over the long term it does seem like this is more like you yeah. know competing in the private 5g space while they're not using 5g they can give you uh you know wider coverage uh, of a cellular network using your own home Wi-Fi. So yeah, yeah, I think, for farms, for small businesses, small manufacturing, yeah. I think there's an opportunity here. And I think the idea that they're going to build a network of networks is highly unlikely. Just, highly just, unlikely. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. you would have to install so many of these and we've already seen Helium was it, in this vein. It, it's a they, touch of that sort of, you know, yeah. a hobbyist homebrew uh, proto-utopian idea that was sort of the birth of the early internet uh, yeah. coming back again. Uh, but yeah, it does seem more like as a, a fundraising and uh, attention grabbing move more than really what the company is going to be about. Yeah, I suspect it'll end up being a micro private 5G type idea. And you put one in, you know, you put the tower node, which you mount outside on a roof so you can broadcast out onto a space. You can get a home node for indoor use. You can get an amplifier for the tower node. And you can actually get other modules for, you know, building your own radio. But the, the big trick there is that there has to be a frequency for them to operate in unlicensed. So I right. could see certain types of operations, warehouses, small industrial sites. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you've got those lots of those little sheds. And instead of each one, you could just share, you know, some sort of uplink between all of them and things like that. So a lot of the... Wi-Fi that's built for that, which doesn't work so well. Like Wi-Fi is not really meant to be for that. Uh, you know, the signal's only meant to go for 100 meters or 300 feet. When you get beyond that, you start having to run cables and power over Ethernet and more Wi-Fi base stations. This might. I sort give of wonder you, if there's also like a, an opportunity for temporary networks. You know, for an event, uh, mm. an outdoor event, or emergency services. You know, mm -hmm. in a disaster response. Uh, there, I think there's a lot of different use cases where this could apply. Yeah, well, the problem with LTE is that your your SIM has to support it, so there has to be some way for, you know, right. your your carrier registered phone to roam onto that LTE, and that doesn't exist today, as far as I'm aware. Could be wrong. Um, so, you know, you can only have devices that are connected to it, and that's going to be their problem. You can build an LTE all you like, 
but how does my home device right, or my home, SIM, yeah. yeah, how does my SIM card register with that? I haven't got that answered. Nobody seems to answer that question. They just say, put this up, it'll be fine, it'll work. But, you know, your your smartphone connects to a telco tower and it has a profile established to it, so who knows? I also wonder if this does take off, particularly for the home network use, if I want to build my own local LTE network, how long before I get a letter from my ISP saying, hey, what are you doing with our bandwidth? Yeah. <laughs> That's not cool. So yeah. a lot of hurdles, but an interesting idea. Interesting idea. It's worth trying. And the, the I think they lack credibility by going for a crowdfunding startup. That feels like they're not confident about their product or they're not confident about their strategy. And so they're going for a cheap start. Sometimes you do this to try and get some profile and to get noticed, but why haven't they just gone to a VC and gotten some money to get this out the door and go straight for the business market? I, I'm not 100%. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something. If so, let me know. Yeah, I didn't take it as a lack of confidence. I took it more as this will be a good way to get some uh, notice. Uh, I, I mean, because we saw the story in the popular press, so that's uh, obviously seems to be working for them and as a way to build up interest among that hobbyist class that still are out there. So I think it's an interesting strategy. Uh, um, crowdfunding feels amateur at this point. We know that. You know. I will say I, I'm pleased. We talked about Helium last week, which mm. was a similar idea, but more for IoT devices, which uses, you know, set up, you uh, allow people to get onto your home Wi-Fi network and everybody shares it and, you know, we make a nice community, but it was basically a front for a crypto mining scheme. Uh, mm. This so far, it doesn't look like it's got that. So I feel <laughs> a little bit better about the Sukama approach that there's, they haven't tied it to crypto yet. Yes. And it actually is an offshoot of the uh, open infrastructure project at, at Facebook. This is an engineer. And remember when they were, we talked at the time about Facebook was developing its own you know, open 5G platforms and hardware. And this is this is the people coming out of that project. So yeah. It does have a long history, so they, they know more about what they're doing than most. Right. I think the founder does seem like he knows what he's doing. So, mm. yeah, links in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion of Network Break. Uh, stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to be talking about the Fortinet Deceptor product that helps you spot intrusions and breaches. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking deception. That is deceiving attackers that try to exploit your network by creating fake assets and infrastructure to lure them in. Sponsor Fortinet is here to talk about using deception techniques to spot intruders via its 40 Deceptor product. And we'll have a link in the show notes that you can go get a free demo or you can search fortinet.com for this uh, free demo of the 40 Deceptor product. We're also going to talk briefly about threat reconnaissance capabilities of a product called 40 Recon. Our guest is Moshe Ben-Simon. He is VP of Product Management. Moshe, welcome to the podcast. And can you give us the elevator pitch on 40 Deceptor? 40 Deceptor, as you mentioned, is a deception-based technology. Rely on the old and famous Honeypot technology, mm -hmm. but kind of a full-stack product, easy to deploy, easy to manage, low cost, low friction to manage. The most important one, early bridge detection with zero false positive. If you cannot detect them, at least deceive them. That's what we believe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what ahead. you're doing there, if I can try and read that back to you to try and decode that a little bit, your the 40 Deceptor product is actually saying honeypots are a viable technology. Put something out there that looks vulnerable. An attacker comes into the network, sees a vulnerable system, and that triggers their order, you know, whatever it is they're using to do the attack or if they're trying to pivot. And but what you're actually saying is that not only are you actually detecting them via the honeypot, you're actually running a deception to trap them in there, to what, to waste time, to capture them so they don't escape? How does that work? 
Yeah, so basically, Forti Deceptor is a full-stack uh, deception technology. It's basically a provide several deception layer to expand the attack surface and maximize the detection rate of the attack. And the idea is basically rely on the concept of active defense that means that if you want to detect and learn, you need to engage. Mm. So the Forti Deceptor technology basically deceives the attacker to engage with a fake asset when he basically engaged with the fake asset, it triggered the first alert. We engage to let him spend his time, tools, tactics. We collect and capture the data. We analyze the data and generate threat intelligence. And the threat intelligence, basically, you can share with your part of your ecosystem. And we also yeah. offer a mitigation tool. So to that's basically- how you get the zero false positives, is because it's not just a case of, oh, that matches a signature, send alert. You're actually saying, I, I capture them, I detect them in the honeypot, I see them do sequential actions which, mat, which match deeply into a threat vector, and therefore you can, very unlikely, you're ever going to give a false positive. Yeah, basically deception rely on, on a very basic idea that nobody should touch something fake unless yeah. he had good reason to do it. And if you think about right. it, you cannot open a door that you are not aware that the door exists. This is the whole idea. <laughs> so if you touch it, you lose it. Right. Okay. So you, you've mentioned full stack a couple of times. What do you mean by a full stack deception uh, product? Yeah, there is two kinds of family in the deception space, the full stack and the half stack. Full stack provide more than one deception layer and half stack is focused on a single deception layer. 40 deceptor belong to the full stack. The first layer is the deception decoy. It's kind of a honeypot on steroid engine, very scalable engine that allows to deploy hundreds of decoys across hundreds of network segments. The second layer is deception traffic, meaning that we send to the wire specific traffic that is basically trying to deceive the attacker to go after data that he extract from the traffic. It can be CDP packet, uh, broadcast packets, any kind of UPnP packets, any kind of packets the attacker looking to capture. And the third layer, it's what we call deception token. If you think about the idea of breadcrumbs that you put in, in the forest, try to find your back home. So it's the same concept. So deception token is a set of keys, what we call fake keys to the vault, that we deploy on the real endpoint and server. Again, on the real endpoint and server. However, it's an agentless technology. And mm-hmm. the idea behind it to, to put fake instruction for the attacker to find, once he extract the data, get exposed to the fake data and go after the data, he will engage with the decoy. It can be fake credentials, fake files, fake application connector, uh, and many okay. more. Right. So the idea is that if an attacker lands on my network, even if they don't land right into the honeypot, they can sniff this traffic on the wire and be like, oh, this looks interesting. And oh, here's a breadcrumb. And it essentially is driving them back to this deception hmm. uh, infrastructure you've got. So then you're- Finds an SSH key and then attempts to SSH into a server and you go like, hang So on. you've then got confirmation, this is actually a breach because nobody should be fooling around with this internally unless they're just trying to exploit our network. Yep, we need to understand something very important. Attacker always land on a real endpoint and server. Yeah. This is the first footprint into the network. So the moment he land on the compromised endpoint and server, everything around him is a smoke and mirror technology. 
all the data that he tried to extract from the desktop or the server, all the network sniffing, even if you run passive sniffing and active sniffing, we know how to detect it. There is decoy all around. And even if he touched the decoy and get detected and understand that, oh, it's made decoy, he doesn't know where is the rest of the decoy. This is the interesting part of the technology. You cannot even fingerprint it because just ping the decoy, you get an alert. The decoy is a very basic animal, I call it. There is two switches, one and zero. Touch it, lose it. Don't touch it. Okay, <laughs> the next step. <laughs> this Is this new? Like This sounds like something that I haven't heard a lot about. Now, I know that there has been various honeypot technologies around, but this goes a lot further. Is this something that's just been developed or has this got a long history? You know, the funny stuff that honeypot celebrate around 30, 34 years lately. And Honeypot was exist, but it's always under the academic research or open source project. Back in 2012, I established the first company in the market, the first right. startup. So it's basically around 10 to 11 years. There is several companies there. Part of them get acquired, part of them run, but the deception exists around 2014. We start seeing the mature product get out. And here in Fortinet, we decide to take it to the next stage, what we call Forti Deceptor 2.0, and take it to the next stage of the dynamic deception operation. This is a new concept of deception that basically it's a dynamic, meaning the deception is, is reactive. It's not just a passive, meaning the right. deception can change the configuration, deployment, profile, change it based trigger, just based on the schedule time. It's an interesting concept, try to make it real smoke and mirror around the attacker. Right. And then now you're up to 40 Deceptive version 4 release, which comes along with new de new decoys, and you've got a lot more in terms of malware detection and integration with various other tools in the Fortinet portfolio. Yes, there is. If I look on the deception business across the last six to eight years, there's three main use cases for deception. The first one is using deception for protecting IoT, OT networks, IoT mm -hmm. in terms of medical and OT meaning SCADA and et cetera. Mm -hmm. The reason for using deception, it sounds like strange, like why to use deception in this kind of network? And I can tell you that a big part of the business today around this use case, first deception is a passive solution. So there is zero impact of critical networks. Second, it's not require any network topology or agent base and third, there is no false positive. And we know this medical organization and OT organization do not have the budget and the people like big banks and big insurance company. So they need something to deploy fast to zero maintenance and zero false positive. So this is a very interesting use case. And we develop a lot of content around, you can find PLC decoy, HMI decoy, IoT sensor of gas station, retail business, medical devices, infusion pump, this kind of mm -hmm. stuff you can find in 40 Deceptor. And this is yeah. the main use case of OT, IoT. There is two more that I can uh, 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 keep and, and explain. The second one, very quick, it's lateral movement. It's basically based on uh, finding the attacker early in the kill chain. Remember, the attacker land on the endpoint. Mm -hmm. We start deceiving immediately in order to shortcut the dwell time. And the third one, it's what we call the SOC efficiency or threat hunting use case. It's basically use the threat intelligence we, we, we generate from the engagement in order to find else in the network where that attacker yeah. exists. So this is another if you're interesting you're capturing piece. them in the honeypots, you're looking at their tools and their methods, and then you can start looking in the logs for those tools and methods to see if they got anywhere. Yeah. You're if much you, closer to, to the 
to the resolution and, and, and hunting, the threat hunting? Think about engagement with a decoy where the attacker just connect the decoy to command and control. Take the IP of the command and control, run a choir in your SIM. Mm. You can mm. find more compromised endpoint that already connected to this command and control. Yeah. It's, it's a very basic idea. Of, yeah, it's a basic idea. Once you know what type idea. of screwdriver a person's working, you can say, don't allow the screwdriver through the firewall. That's yep. a bad metaphor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but, but we need to understand the powerful of the threat intelligence that you get from deception technology. It's a threat yeah. intelligence that we generate from attacks that are running inside your network, not in the outside. It's not a generic subscription that you buy. No. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what deployment looks like? Am I setting up some uh, a server or a switch, some hardware or virtual appliance in my network to, to run this? Yeah, so basically like any other cybersecurity product, you can have it as a hardware appliance or virtual appliance. In terms of virtualization, we support the whole platform from private to public. A single appliance can run 480 decoys across 128 VLAN. So first interface is the management we have, add, we have five other interfaces. You either can connect it to a trunk, get access to many VLAN, or as a port access specific to the VLAN. Mm -hmm. The moment you connect the system to the network and give the system the network ranges, from this point, everything is automatic. The system will generate your asset inventory. We do yeah. it either active or passive. It's your decision. After having the asset inventory, we basically generate the decoys that we think you need to mimic your environment. So you get mm -hmm. a nice logical map with all your VLAN and all the decoy that we recommend you to deploy. You can click on each one of them to customize, to accept it, to discard it, and et cetera. Once you agree with our recommendation engine, and you always have the option to edit manually, you, run, you click accept, and the whole decoy will get deployed right. automatically. On so the there's a central control point. This is a software managed solution. It's not like yep. I have to go out and plug honeypots into a bunch of places. This is a centrally managed, it's all centrally deployment, managed. all the operations, everything comes from a central management console. Central console, you can manage up to 125 remote appliances. You have a single pane of glass. You can manage, deploy, alert, forensics, mitigation, everything from a single console. And we need to uh, remember that Outside the fact that we deploy decoys and we can decide if the decoy can be active and passive for the packet, we also have the deception token and also the deception token generate automatically by the platform. End right. of the day, you get a script. It's an exe file. You can put it on your logon script, Active Directory, SCCM, yeah. any kind of tool to know how to run an exe. You run it, you insert the deception token and disappear. Nothing left right. on your endpoint and server and waiting for the attacker in engage. Yes, yeah. it's an agentless technology. Right. And so you leave this you, like an SSH key or some sort of false login details, you know, according to whatever, you know, you it's, want. You, you can get credentials, SSH yeah. key, even you can have a, de a DevOps keys for your cloud environment. <laughs> so we know how to close, <laughs> we know how to put AWS keys. And in the same time, we will go to the AWS infrastructure to check every second if somebody used the fake keys in order right. to access your AWS. And so if suddenly somebody uses those keys, you go like, hang on, something's gone wrong. Nobody should ever use those keys. And if they show up, there's been a yep. breach. So even if they didn't hit the honeypot somehow, you can actually put these false, you know, these deception tokens anywhere. And and if they, if they go off, then something's wrong. So that would pick up not only an external threat, but also an internal threat. Yeah, we need, to, we need to remember that one of the powerful integration of deception is having the integration with the same solution. Because mm. there is something very important we need to remember and don't let the other vendor to bluff you. When you distribute fake token on your endpoint and server, 
there is always the option the attacker will use the fake information against real asset. Think about it. If I put mm. fake credentials, he can take it and use it against real asset, how I detect it. Mm. So the integration with SIM solution allow you not just to detect the access to the decoy, also access to real asset based on the fake information. Mm. So right. we also have a direct integration with SIM solution. We automatically feed them with the fake data. We automatically mm. create the correlation rules and we automatically so pull the data and let you know that somebody used it against real asset and not fake asset. So I want to make sure I understand if if you say let's it's an SSH key and someone tries to use that key to get access to a server, obviously they're not going to get access because it's a fake key, but my seam will have been trained to recognize this as this is a problem. I send an alert. Now I need to kick off an investigation. Is that what you're saying? Yep. So I'm feed the seam with all my fake information in order to detect access to a decoy or access to a real asset using the fake data. Okay. Um, and, and so that whole operational cycle is complete. It's not like I have to manually take each token and load it into- No, no, fully, auto fully automatically. Yeah. No, no. So I also mentioned in my introduction, there's also 40 Recon, uh, which is uh, an, another product in the portfolio. Can you tell us very briefly what 40 Recon does and maybe how it ties into uh, 40 Deceptor? Yeah, 40 Recon, basically, it's a vulnerability management tool that provides you, from one hand, digital risk protection service and an external attack surface management. So it's basically focusing on the reconnaissance stage, and it's a service a, a, a solution, meaning that we have a, a 40 Recon cloud that basically map your attacks, attack surface, the external facing network, also go after the darknet, find information on your domain and your brand. And you combine all the sources of intelligence, the active scanning on your external exposure interfaces, and basically calculate into a digital risk protection and also offer you some negotiation service with darknet attacker that compromise your data. So you can hire Fortinet to do it for you. And if you look on all the data, it's basically the integration with 40 Deceptor is very interesting because if the 40 Recon uh, collect data from the underground that somebody publish an exploit on a specific OS or specific device, I can get this data and change the deployment decoys in order to mimic this vulnerability. Mm. Right. So if somebody somebody collect data regarding Siemens PLC or some other big vendor regarding exploit and et cetera, I have this kind of decoy. I can switch automatically to have this decoy on my network because I know that in the wild, there is some exploit that people use as a zero-day access. All right. Well, I wish we had more time because I'm really fascinated by this 40 Deceptor product. I'd like to know more. If listeners want to get more information, Moshe, where should they go? So if you want to have a free trial of the product, you can go to the Fortinet website slash demo center slash 40 Deceptor demo. You can request for a trial or if you want to touch that product in hands, you can go to 40deceptor.40demo.com. And you basically can access the product under read-only access. And if not, you can find it also on the web website. And there is a lot of content under 40 Deceptor page on the 40Net product. And you know, you can also connect one of your sales rep in your territory to, to get access to the product. Great. Well, we'll also have all those links in the show notes if you want to find them uh, at packapushers.net. And you can go to fortinet.com slash products slash 40 Deceptor. 
uh, and also look for that free demo at Fortinet.com. Uh, thank you, Moshe, for joining us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. Sponsors let Packet Pushers provide free technical podcasts, blogs, and videos for network engineers and IT pros. Uh, if you like this episode, you can find more along with our community blog at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Hear us on Spotify, watch instructional videos on our YouTube channel, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.